Welcome to episode three of Theater Reviews from My Seat. This podcast is based on my blog, which can be located at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. In this episode, we're going to cover the theatrical experiences I attended from January of 2018. Let's start off with the return of Mark Rylance to Broadway in the play Farinelli and the King. When Mark Rylance comes to town, I get tickets. I've seen most of his performances in New York, starting with his Tony-winning turn in the farce Boeing Boeing as a bubbling, deadpan, clueless best friend from Wisconsin. He was screamingly hilarious. Then came another Tony for Jerusalem as a drunken party man living in a trailer in the woods and taking on the world in a colossus of a performance, one of my favorites ever. And in Broadway turns in Lovette, Twelfth Night as Olivia, and the title role in Richard III, plus even Nice Fish at St. Anne's Warehouse. So yes, I'm a huge fan. Understandable then to be excited that he's back on stage here in Farinelli and the King, playing the Spanish mad king Philippe V. The play was written by his wife, Claire Van Campen. The stage is set as a grand presentation of a courtly theater with some audience members seated on stage and lit by candlelight as in back in the day. So disappointing then to sit through a play in which really nothing happens other than some musings from a mad king and an underdeveloped story about his wife and a countertenor who sings arias beautifully and arguably too often. The singing and the jarringly odd contemporary language occasionally scattered throughout did not hide the lack of substance. Despite the rousing standing ovation from the audience in the performance I attended, the entire evening is frankly dull and unfortunately pointless. Was this about music as a healing force? Art and fame? Being a king is a bummer? Castrated singers are hot? Some combination of all that? As there was no story arc to latch onto, perhaps due to thin relationships between the characters, it was hard to tell. This seems to me, therefore, to be an exercise in watching Mr. Rylance act. He opens the play with a fishing pole in one hand and a goldfish bowl in the other. Mad, I tell you, mad. Farinelli and the King was a waste of time, sad to say. We now move to the islands and the revival of the musical Once on this Island. Staged in the near-perfectly suited Circle in the Square Theater, Once on this Island is back on Broadway. Fair disclosures? I saw the original world premiere off-Broadway at Playwrights Horizon in 1990 and then attended its opening night on Broadway later that year. My great childhood friend Jerry McIntyre was in that cast. I know the show, loved the show, and was looking forward to its new incarnation. This revival of Lynn Aarons and Stephen Flaherty's first Broadway musical was widely praised. I attended the show with David and Sarah, who both loved it. To be honest, I'm firmly in the liked it category. The setting was fantastic. A sandy beach, ocean water, and the islanders greet us on arrival. A thunderstorm rolls in, and one small girl is frightened. As a distraction, the storytellers tell her about T. Moon, an excellent Haley Kilgore. She is a dark-skinned islander who falls for Daniel, a lighter-skinned boy from the wealthier class. With exceptional music and lyrics, the whole fable is magical. Special kudos to Kanita Miller as Mama Uralee and Alex Newell as Asaka, who were both terrific and fun to watch. So why did I put this in the liked it category? 
I found the direction and pacing here slightly frenetic, especially in the beginning. The staging in the round forces the cast to occasionally have their back to you, and as a result, I found the lyrics to get lost or swallowed by the sound design, which was odd given that I was centrally seated in the third row. I was reminded of the 2012 Godspell revival in the same theater, in which songs also seemed aggressively amped up and lyrics sadly sacrificed. Once on the Silent is a beautiful show, and this is a very good version. I wished I loved it as much as my fellow theatergoers. Perhaps I am overly familiar with the material. In this case, I really don't think so. Quite clearly, the best musical of 2006. The Drowsy Chaperones concert staging at the Cabaret Club 54 Below. Although the Tony went to Jersey Boys, the Drowsy Chaperone is one of my all-time favorites, and it celebrated its 10th anniversary with a two-show reunion at 54 Below. The evening was narrated by the original man and chair and book author Bob Martin. Many of the original cast members were present, including Tony winner Beth Level, who, as a title character, keeps her eyeball on the highball in her hand. For fans of this show, this concert version was great fun. The Drowsy Chaperone is a musical parody of 1920s Broadway, which began life as a stag party skit created for the real-life marriage of Bob Martin and Janet Van de Graaff in 1997. As man and chair, the character of Bob Martin plays his record album of the imaginary 1928 hit The Drowsy Chaperone, which is described as mix-ups, mayhem, and a gay wedding. As man and chair Riley observes, of course gay wedding has a different meaning nowadays, Back then, it just meant fun. From the Toronto Fringe Festival, the show evolved and hit the big time in 2006. Nominated for 13 Tonys, it won six of them. As a bonus, during this concert, Lisa Lambert, the show's co-composer and original drowsy chaperone, performed that character's long-since-abandoned song about being drowsy, which was later replaced by the show's anthem, As We Stumble Along. From a 2015 BroadwayWorld.com review of a production that was done in Massachusetts. The Drowsy Chaperone is one of those shows that is inherently comical in its nature. It is literally laugh-out-loud funny, portraying the lives and actions of each of its characters as almost too absurd to be believed. The Drowsy Chaperone is really a beautiful show that is saturated with singing, dancing, some very odd characters, and an almost too simple plot that makes the show awesome. I love that quote. To be honest, The Drowsy Chaperone is even better than that. Bucket list this one next time it comes to town. In the meantime, check out the vast array of talent that performs at 54 Below, Broadway Supper Club in New York. I'd like to just throw out a special note to all of our friends in the St. Louis area. Beth Level is coming to the Muni this summer as Mama Rose in Gypsy. Continuing with the musicals, we now go to the Broadway revival of Miss Saigon. I am not sure it will ever be possible to stage a production of Miss Saigon that is better than the revival closing on Broadway this week. Extraordinarily well-directed by Lawrence Connor, this musical was riveting from start to finish. I remember the original production, which I saw in 1993 and liked. The show still suffers slightly from the singing every line overkill typical of Broadway during this period. But it soars so high from the glorious voices of its cast to the dramatic staging scenery, lighting, and focused commitment to storytelling. What does extraordinarily well-directed even mean? 
The musical opens in Dreamland, a Saigon whorehouse in 1975, frequented by American soldiers during the Vietnam War and run by the engineer, played by a superb John John Briones, whose 11 o'clock number, The American Dream, surpassed my memory of the original. With a huge ensemble cast, every Marine and bar girl on stage has a reason to be there. You can see and follow lots of individualized stories going on amidst the seedy action and tensions. There is not a chorus standing around filling space. These are all actors embodying the scene. Greatness is usually in the details, and this Miss Saigon has all of them covered. Even Nobozada plays Kim, forced into engineer service after her family was murdered, and then meets Chris, an excellent Alistair Brammer, who is a soldier stationed in Saigon. An updated version of Puccini's Madame Butterfly, what follows is a doomed romance of an Asian woman abandoned by her American lover. Ms. Noblezada was simply astonishing. The beauty and clarity of her voice, in combination with an exceptionally dramatic face, fully conveyed the anguish, hope, fear, and dreams of Kim. I loved this production. Yes, Miss Saigon is a melodrama, combined with its famous helicopter scene, but when the blades are rotating and the breezes are literally blowing, it's Broadway magic. Next, we'll move to St. Anne's Warehouse in Brooklyn and the play Valley Turk. I rarely hate something so completely as to want to run out of the theater to save my mortal soul. In this 90-minute exercise with pretentious drivel, I had to, had to, peek at my phone to see how much more boredom there was left to endure. I was about 65 minutes into Valley Turk. 65 minutes more than needed and a full 25 minutes to escape. Do I leave now? That was the tension created by this play. If you are a fan of Beckett and Waiting for Gatto, perhaps you may find some sort of diverting, forgettable thrill. For everyone else, save your cash. Promised as gut-wrenchingly funny, this Irish import was written and directed by Enda Walsh, the Tony Award-winning book writer for the exquisite musical Once, and the co-creator with David Bowie of the stylized mess called Lazarus. Third time for me is not a charm. For those readers still on the fence, two men in a Ballyturk flat go about their lives seemingly play-acting, dancing around to records, flowering themselves, getting dressed, being silly, having conversations which may or may not be real, imagined, past events, none of it is funny, really. Antic, yes? Gut-wrenchingly hilarious? No, without any question whatsoever. Unfortunately for Ballyturk, a visitor of sorts arrives who has one of the longest and singularly most boring monologues in the history of theater. While that is an exaggeration for sure, the common is much funnier than anything in Ballyturk. The surprise last-minute ending was at least interesting, inviting an opportunity to consider what this crap was all about, even if by this point you could care less. A much better offering from the Atlantic Theatre Company is the play The Homecoming Queen. I will apologize in advance for all the names that I butcher in this episode, in this review, and in many, many, many to follow. Set in the emo state of present-day Nigeria, Ngozi Anyaou's play, The Homecoming Queen, has been given its world premiere in the smaller, more intimate Stage 2 space of the Atlantic Theatre Company. The result is equally a feeling of community and of eavesdropping on one house whose daughter, 
the best-selling author Kelechi, has returned home from New York after 15 years away. Her father is still alive, proud, but obviously much older. There is a lot to talk about and also not talk about, as in many families. Kelechi's anxieties are front and center. She's taking pills to help herself cope. The play itself is excellent, with structure that goes back and forth in time as the story unfolds. We see these characters peel back their histories. The best friend from childhood. The new house girl. The chorus, represented by four women who are the townsfolk, neighbors, gossips, historians, and singers, namely the community. Directed by Owohi Timpo, the effect of surrounding the audience with these ladies ingeniously centers the listener to a place. You never completely lose sight of them, which nicely conveys the density of this area's population. Thanks, school, for giving me that fact. No plot spoilers here. Kalechi, our homecoming queen, is played by Mofnisu Dofia, a playwright with last season's sojourners in her portmanteau, who constantly returns to acting in this emotionally fulfilling role. Excellent work throughout this cast, notably by Segan Akande Zobina, a childhood friend who has found success in his homeland. In a week where the President of the United States was quoted as having referred to African nations as shitholes, the need for theater to continue to shine spotlights on all peoples and their stories remains vitally important. A beautifully realized piece, The Homecoming Queen is most welcome in my worldview. Next up, from the Mint Theater Company, is a production of the play Hindle Wakes. A young woman from the Milltown Hindle returns home to her parents after a weekend getaway. Wakes Weeks began as religious festivals, but then became secular bank holidays where factories would close up to 10 days. Those who could afford it might spend their time at Blackpool, a local English seaside resort akin to New York's Coney Island. Written by Stanley Houghton, Hindle Wakes is essentially the aftermath of a spring break circa 1912. 100 years ago, this play was an enormous hit in England, subsequently made into four films, two in the silent era. A vice-chancellor of Oxford University banned students from all theaters performing the play. The Guardian wrote that Hindelwigs not only scandalized playgoers, but persons who had never been inside a theater and who were never likely to visit one joined in the general outcry. When the play landed on Broadway that same year, it failed largely due to a negative New York Times review. During a 1922 revival, the paper changed its mind and said, it is now, as it was then, a shrewd and nourishing and artful comedy. 95 years later, the Mint Theater has mounted Hindle Wakes for the first time in New York since then. What was going on in the minds of young men and women, and also their parents, back in the day? Our playwright Stanley Houghton wrote over a dozen plays, many of which called for women's sexual and economic freedom. 100 years later, this play remains topical. Directed by Gus Kekkonen, a frequent Mint collaborator, the production values, sets, costumes, they're top-notch, and the cast is excellent. Even the maid in a bit part is perfect. This play takes place over two days following a spring break dalliance in 1912. What was on the playwright's mind back then? What do these characters think and why? Simple and straightforward, a serious comedy with big ideas, Hindle Wakes is a rediscovered classic. My advice, run to see this one. Now moving back to Broadway and the play The Children. 
Lucy Kirkwood's play The Children arrived on Broadway after an acclaimed run in London with its original cast. The action takes place in a small cottage isolated near the British coastline. A retired couple has retreated here after an environmental disaster has left their home uninhabitable. A woman from their past stops by. Why? How are the children, she asks. We quickly learn that a nuclear power plant has been severely compromised by an earthquake and the resultant tsunami. In the children, Ms. Kirkwood gives us plenty to think about. What are the responsibilities of our decisions as human beings to our planet and future generations? What is the best way to have lived one's life? Does homemade parsnip booze taste terrible but get you really drunk? Are the cows the couple own behind the exclusion zone okay? Does exercise and yoga effectively fill one's time late in life? These and many, many more topics swirl around the slow-building mystery of a play until we approach the ending and the real reason these three are together on this day. Since this play is built like a mystery with deepening revelations along the way, there's a lot of space to fill. Thankfully, the three actors here, Francesca Annis, Ron Cook, and Deborah Finlay, are all riveting in their portrayal of simplistic, complicated, realistic, and conflicted characters. That seems to come with age and mortality looming. James MacDonald beautifully directed this play. It's an odd combination of scary, comforting, tragic, and hopeful. I've previously seen two of his efforts, Cloud Nine at Atlantic Theater and Cock at the Duke. Both were outstanding productions with creative staging and actors excelling in their roles. The set design for this play is also memorable. The cottage is visibly askew at an angle, maybe 15 degrees. Everything is off kilter in the children, and the result is not only excellent theater, but a pile of themes to ponder well after the curtain comes down. From the company The Civilians is the off-Broadway play The Undertaking. Steve Cosson is the writer and director of The Undertaking. He is also the artistic director of The Civilians, a company whose mission is to create new theater from creative investigations into the most vital questions of the present. They are the troupe that premiered Ann Washburn's phenomenal Mr. Burns, a post-electric play. In the undertaking, the vital question being explored is death. In an office, Steve is recording Lydia's thoughts for a play he is writing. This process of interviewing various individuals about topics ranging from death, illness, and the fear of dying is the framework. Some of this is morbidly funny. While the two actors play interviewer and interviewee, they also break out into other people who have been recorded, including an ovarian cancer survivor and Everett Quinton, the off-Broadway star of the Ridiculous Theater Company. From these interviews, the piece morphs into a therapy session for Steve, who is considering his mother's life in a nursing home and his own mortality. Even added into the mix are visual clips and an analysis of the Jean Cocteau film Orpheus. New knowledge. Rubber gloves are the gateway to the afterlife. An inventive premise makes the undertaking interesting. The therapy session lost me a little as it went on, although admittedly that could be a personal reaction. Perhaps the comedic personalities could be amped up even further. Think Sophia Vergara as Lydia insisting that the interview is a dialogue as she helps Steve through his process. Overall, the undertaking is an unusual creative piece well-staged in the Upper East Side's 59 East 59th Theater. The audience skews older here, which made the experience even more surreal. Now to a small off-off-Broadway house and a production of A Chronicle of the Madness of Small Worlds.
New York Data Workshop has opened its inaugural season of Nextdoor at NYTW in the newly renovated 4th Street Theater. This initiative provides artists subsidized resources and space for the development and performance of their work. New York Theater Workshop is a hugely successful off-Broadway house, as evidenced by 17 Tony Awards after the show's moved uptown, the Pulitzer Prize, and numerous other awards its productions have garnered. Shows that I have seen there include 100 Days, Nat Turner in Jerusalem, Othello with Daniel Craig, Red Speedo, Town, What's It All About, Belleville, Once, and Peter and the Starcatchers. All of them excellent. So why not try their new, even more experimental work? A Chronicle of the Madness of Small Worlds is a Mac Wellman play based on two of his short stories in a collection of the same name. The notes state that each story is told by one of the imagined inhabitants of a small world in the asteroid belt. Act 1 is Woo World Woo, performed by Timothy Siragusa. This monologue describes a world of grotesque violence largely concerning his family. Everyone in Wu, W-U, or is it W-O-O? Well, everyone in Wu has the same name, Mary Carnivorous Rabbit. The piece is completely manic, serious, yet funny. Act 2, titled Horrocks and Titus 2, has a completely different tone. Anastasia Olowin appears in a flowing white gown, is mostly seated, and delivers her story which begins with her being chased by brutish boys throwing rocks at her. The quiet intensity of her performance elevates the language and nails the playful silliness which is intertwined with the semi-serious. Accompanying both of these pieces is a four-member band who have created a phenomenal score, which I can only describe as exquisite B-movie science fiction musicality. For those yearning to see something different, more experimental, and more downtown, A Chronicle of the Madness of Small Worlds is worth a try. Next, Let's cross the Hudson River, go into New Jersey, to the Two River Theater in Red Bank, and its production of El Coquille Spectacular and the Bottle of Doom. A superhero play by Matt Barbot, El Coquille Spectacular is set in Brooklyn. Our hero is an expiring, out-of-work comic book writer named Alex, played by a terrific Bradley James Tejeda. In his everyday life, he lives at home with his mother and brother, who works for a vile soda company peddling sugar to Latinos. This is the bottle of doom of the title. Naturally, our Puerto Rican superhero has a costume, handmade, is a vigilant neighborhood crime fighter, well, trying, and in the process becomes a famous celebrity in the community. As is required in comics, we have a diabolical villain named El Chupacabra apparently named after a legendary creature who sucks the blood of goats and was first reported to be seen in Puerto Rico. None of this is in the play, but it certainly explains the spines on the costume. El Chupacabra is played with hilarious evil relish by Gabriel Diego Hernandez. There is also the female photographer who encounters our hero, and a mom who is tough, a little batty, but with a heart of gold. Much of this entertainment is great fun, if slightly leaning towards children's theater, the messages and themes are fairly simplistic, which admittedly can be appropriate for comics, but adds extra weight to the serious moments. Thankfully, the townsfolk, denoted by the cast wearing bright green glasses, jump in to make us laugh at the exaggerated parody. The production values of El Coquilla Spectacular and the Bottle of Doom were incredibly good. This was my first excursion to Two River Theater, and the venue is impressive. The scenic designer Arnulfo Maldonado and the rest of the largely New York-based production team 
I've created a colorful and creative comic book storyboard, which impressively enhances the action. Overall, this play is high quality fun. Our last entrant for January of 2018 is Second Stage Theater's unfortunate production of Cardinal. When dialogue is stilted, the responsibility to bring it to life falls to the actors and the director. When that does not successfully happen, the result is cardinal. The playwright Greg Pierce is commenting on current economic conditions in America, like last year's Pulitzer Prize winning Sweat. In this effort, a small city in upstate New York has an abandoned factory, a declining population, and few prospects. Lydia Lensky, played by Anna Chlumsky, returns home with some big ideas for the mayor. Like other successful tourist destinations around the world, they could paint downtown a single color, got a deal on Cardinal Red, and the tourists will follow. While immigrants were a cause of concern to the townspeople of Sweat, here the energy is focused on the Chinese. The tour buses arrive and the imbalance of economic power is on display. Our young mayor gets to stomp his feet in a petulant rage while getting entangled with Lydia. A soap opera storyline ensues, which is completely unbelievable, exacerbated by a lack of chemistry between the leads. Or was that the directorial intent? The Chinese mogul and his son want to invest more in the town. The bakery owner and her autistic son are not happy with the changes. Kate Wariski directed this play, and she also directed Sweat. Hard to say why this play feels so clumsy and unfocused. The bludgeoning use of the red color of the title? The buildings are painted red, the mayor's bedsheets are ridiculously red, and there is an eye-rolling conversation at the end of the play where Lydia sees a cardinal, truly. Or maybe the problem is the overstuffed plot venturing from rom-com to something darker and then back again. The topper? Crocheted monkeys for sale at the bakery representing a happier time for America's past. Or is that satire? Cardinal is not the reason to start taking up birdwatching, or crocheting, or theater. Thank you for listening to Theater Reviews from My Seat. Next up will be an episode featuring February 2018 reviews, including the concert staging of Thoroughly Modern Millie for the Actors Fund charity benefit performance, and what I'm very excited to see is Jerry Springer, The Opera. As always, thank you for listening, and please visit www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com for a fuller catalog of reviews. You can also email comments or suggestions for productions to be reviewed at theaterreviewsfrommyseat at comcast.net.